Welcome to the Beginning by Thinking Show podcast. First of all, I'd like to congratulate England on winning the World Cup for cricket. But, on with the podcast. Today, I'll be sitting down with Andy Mack, an eminent psychologist and to some, a legend in his lifetime. Enjoy. Thank you for that very kind introduction, James. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I like the bit about being a, a legend in my own lifetime. I think I might be more like a legend in my own breakfast time, <laughs> especially as I am supposed to tell you what I actually have for breakfast this morning. Yes, so what is your breakfast? This morning was quite an unusual breakfast, but sometimes you just fancy something. So I had two Weetabix with uh, milk, loads of sugar, a little squirt of clear honey, and a small glass of red wine. Nice. And it was very nice. And it's now about 11 o'clock, and I still don't feel hungry. And, and that's the main thing, breakfast should sustain you until lunchtime. I had those mini chocolate chip Weetabix this morning. Oh, I like Cocoa Pops. Mmm. Uh, and, and also I had this uh, Arctic Coffee Cafe Latte thing to, to give me a bit of an energy kick, you know? Yeah, um, I just prefer... Um, very strong black coffee, mm. uh, but it's, it's really what you fancy in the morning. Yeah. One of, one of my tests in the morning for waking up is to switch the radio on and drink coffee until I can understand what they're saying. Yeah. And the world just suddenly becomes clearer and clearer. Tea does not quite work. So, to everyone listening, you do acting. Let's talk about yeah, that so for a little bit. Before we get under psychology, yeah. Um, um, I am a psychologist, a childhood psychologist, and I've been a psychology lecturer for just over 20 years. What's that experience been like? Um, it, academic backbiting is interesting. It's not always the nicest environment to work on. And it's things like arguments over offices and what title you have on your office door. You know, like professor or doctor, or do you put it as the name and then PhD and all these sort of arguments. Um, but all, all you do learn to do is to um, defend your own space and, and ignore people who aren't so nice. Um, I want to go back to acting. Um, I think it's very strange. Many years ago, and I often relate this to students, is that my original choice was to do a degree in something arty or artistic. Yeah. And my favourite area was film or movie production or directing. So I applied to do a degree in it. Unfortunately, for some reason, they turned me down. It certainly wasn't a lack of enthusiasm. I just don't think they really quite grasped who I was. And so I was turned down. So I thought, you know, what am I going to do now? Oh, I'll do a degree, a degree in psychology. I knew nothing about it. But it just sounded like one of those interesting words. Are you so glad I, you did it? I, oh, yeah, very glad I did it, mate. So uh, if you could have gone back in time and you would have been guaranteed the degree you were going to plan to get originally or go for a psychology degree, what would it be? What I was often advise students is um, if you've got a, a, a goal in life, just stick with it. If at first you fail, yeah. then have another go. Don't, don't, don't give in. Stick with your first choice. It's like the only way you can truly live happily is if you monetize your passion, you know? Uh, well, it is almost because it's nice. Um, I look upon it certainly 
the art world as actually being paid for doing something you enjoy doing. But didn't you find creativity a bit too risky? It's like there's always a risk with creativity. You can either be super, super successful with it and you could be driving the future or you could miserably fail. That's the issue with creativity. Well, no, no, it is, because if you fail, you become a, a teacher. So you teach art or drama mm. in school, another reason. But most good um, drama or art teachers have had some sort of career within the arts before they become a teacher. So when you were doing psychology, did you have... Um, a motivation for success or a motivation to teach to pass on knowledge what was your my my motivation I suppose initially was to actually earn some money and actually pay for the mortgage That's yeah really bad. so I mean me getting into to being a psychology teacher and lecturer in some ways is quite sad um, because uh, I was in my second year I did I've done two degrees and my second degree was actually psychology. Yeah, so I spent six years doing two basic degrees. In the second year of my um, second degree, when I was doing just pure psychology, I was offered a job teaching it. At that mm. stage, I hadn't even completed the degree. And I must admit, it's actually one of the most scary experiences I've ever had. Was having a quick interview with the head at school, saying we've lost our psychology teacher. We're desperate to cover the, uh, the topic. Um, can you start Monday? And so that Monday, I found myself walking into a class of 30 girls, having never taught before. Yeah. And it was one of the most scary experiences I've <clears> ever had. So what was going through your head before you walked into the classroom? Well, why am I doing this? this yeah. <laughs> my, my comfort zone. Is this a, a career I want to make for the rest of my life? Mm. Uh, and and it, was, it was hard. But the good thing is, um, I stuck with that school. I learned all the mistakes, as you do when you, you're quite naive, and then moved on to, to being a university lecturer and teaching in other schools, um, you know, well aware of the slight mistakes I made in the first school. I think most teachers would admit to that, is that their first post is very much learning. You, don't, you wouldn't know what it's like to stand in front of a class of 30 people, yeah. how it actually feels until you've done it. Yeah. So, what did what would you say you preferred? Did you prefer the socially liberal environment of a university, or the more uh, sort of strict you have to be in order schooling system? Well, through my whole career, in certain with regards to teaching, I always was a lecturer and did teaching at the same time. So I'd be doing like two days in a university, maybe two days in a school. Ah, okay. And so I was teaching sort of both levels concurrently. So I have, at one point I was working at a university and three different schools. Yeah. And you have a different personality for each one. Yeah. So I'd drive to one place, you almost take a deep breath, and, and you know, I think, oh, I'm, I'm at this place, this is my uh, personality here. Yeah. I'll tell you about the differences. One is that I needed to dress differently with each of them, and within each of them, they had to address me by a different title. So school, you was, could uh, have totally developed like a split personality disorder with something no, like that. No, it almost was. I'd stand outside, you know, you know, in, in full consciousness, and change my personality. Yeah, who am I going to um, be today? Because in a uh, university, it's your first name, and you have to dress down. I remember one of my colleagues being told not to wear a tie because it makes you look too much like the enemy. 
Mm. That, 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 that's anyone who's not academic, basically. Yeah. Uh, etc. At schools, generally, you need to wear a collar and tie and a suit. In one school, I had to be referred to as Sir. In another one, it was by his surname, Mr. McCarthy. And at mm. the FE College, it was, again, dressed down, um, and they could call you by your first name. Yeah. I learned a very quick lesson there. And, and although I wore, like, a jacket and jeans, I always wore a tie. So I was caught in a very awkward situation once. Busy day, you just want to have a nice cup of tea, so I go down to the canteen, sitting there having a canteen, and a fight kicks off. And I look round and I thought, oh, S-H-I-T, I'm the only teacher here, I'd better go and deal with it. I just hope someone else was there so I could enjoy my nice cup of tea. Yeah. And I noticed this guy, a couple of guys, he pushed this other guy on the, on the floor, and the boot was about to go in. So I stood in between them, and just said to him something like, um, I don't think that you should be doing that. And he looked at me, looked me up down, I thought I was going to die. And he said, you're not worth it, and he walked off. <laughs> I immediately ran, ran security, and by the time they got to the gate, they'd know. <coughs> but yeah, he said that because I didn't look like a, a student. Yeah. And he knew that I was a lecturer, and he said, you're not worth it. And he was much bigger than me, he could have killed me, to be honest. Um, it's amazing what you actually experience sometimes in teaching. So did you, that's quite a crazy uh, experience. Um, it is quite a crazy experience. But, um, yeah, because you just wouldn't expect that to happen, really. But there's, no, there's no way I could have just sat back and watched this guy kick the other guy in the head. Yeah. That, that can kill people, mm. you know, life-changing injuries. So I had to stand in between them. And it was only the fact that I looked like a teacher that he backed off and said, you're not worth it and walked away. So this this was a student, I imagine, right? Yeah, it was a student on the floor and a student about to kick him in the head. Damn. And so what amazing. what would have happened as a repercussion at the school you were at? Would it have just been a suspension or expelled? Or? Uh, the, the guy was expelled and, yeah. and the whole incident was reported to the police. Yeah. And I have actually no idea what came out of that. No, because I did actually once deal with a, a much more serious... Um, episode of bullying so I've always liked to um, make sure that I always did my bit to minimise bullying you will never eradicate it it's part of human nature but if it's over I mean as a teacher or even as a lecturer you've got no choice but to intervene and intervene swiftly yeah I was working at this one place where I thought the way they followed up bullying um, was not good enough this was a few years back and it was all like, but this is like part of the way people are, sort of thing. Now, I caught a girl, a, a guy, with his hand around this girl's throat, threatening her with a hypodermic needle. Damn. Uh, now, I've had some, a little bit of self defence training, so I, 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 he didn't see me. I got him from behind, arm lock, made him drop it, mm. took him to the edge of the educational premises, so we were outside. And I said, if I ever see you here on this premises again, you'll be dead, mate. The best thing you can do is just say you're not coming back. And, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Because I think the establishment would, would have not have dealt with it correctly. So would you as a teacher, you would have got in massive trouble if that was recorded, right? I could have got in a lot of trouble for that, but there was this poor young girl absolutely terrified. Yeah. 
I got him in an arm lock from behind and forced him to drop the needle, frog marks him to get off the premises and told him if I ever see you on his premises again, um, there will be consequences. How old do you remember the girl being? She would have been about um, 17. 17, so that could have messed up her life forever. Yeah, so I um, had to walk her to the bus stop for about a week until she was confident to walk outside. And mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm still in contact with her. She always appreciated the fact that I, I took very decisive action on her. I, mean, I did report it to Did that experience um, help her with life at all? Did it make her oh, yeah, more yeah, yeah. resistant? She's gone on and got a degree and, and is very happy. So she's doing well for herself. Doing well for herself. Very That's good. I lo I love stories like that. Some of these just little bits that you can do in life, and sometimes you have to step outside the rules. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't make a choice. Um, I, had, I had to disarm him. You know, and, it it makes me think that people who go through worst experiences actually do sort of come out stronger. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. If and they if they manage to come out, they come out stronger, from what I'm aware of. And sometimes you're silly enough on the spur of the moment, you take risks. I, I certainly wouldn't do that now. Yeah. Uh, but I felt young and fit enough to actually disarm him from behind. Mm. He didn't know I was there. Uh, and, and twist his arm around and make him drop it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I was actually quite impressed by myself, to be honest. Mm. I had a little bit of back up to it, though, because as a teenager, um, I'd done amateur boxing. And so felt that I was able to. Yeah, you know, handle myself reasonably well, one on one, and I was certainly never bullied at school because of that. Yeah, uh, I mean the label of it, the label of being a, a boxer, martial artist, whatever. It's yeah. certainly it's potent. It's very potent. Yeah, and I almost got expelled on my first day at secondary school because of it. What'd you do? Well, because you turn up, and you're nervous. Uh, yeah, you're all these big guys. New environment, a bit chaotic. Yeah, it was from the sixth form there. He was, at, I found out afterwards, was known as the school bully. Yeah. He said to me, and this, this is a few years back, I think we're talking the 1970s now, if you pay me 50p a week, um, I'll make sure no one picks on you. That's, that's the protectionism, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd come from a London school to a suburban school. Yeah. So I said to him, my hearing's not that good, can you say it again? And so he leant in to say it to me again. Oh, knockout punch. I planted him at one. I've never done it in the boxing ring. <laughs> a, a right uppercut. On yeah. The nice. Okay. It was the nicest shot I've ever done. I, it, I, I, were you adrenaline then, fueled? Yeah, the next thing I knew, I was in front of the headmaster. And I just said to him, oh, it was an accident. He just turned around and caught my old sort of it. And he accepted it. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. He probably he probably knew, but he probably knew it was the school bully as well. So, yeah, um, I've become reasonably friends with the school bully, and the good thing is I, I was I was never picked on or bullied in school after that. Yeah, and it, didn't, it didn't cost me anything. It was one 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 shot actually on the button. Mm. You do some martial arts, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do jujitsu, muay thai. Um, I did a bit of boxing, did a little bit of karate. Yeah. Have you ever actually had to use it in action, sort of thing? Um, a couple of times. A couple of times. It's it's sort of um, it gets less sort of method, you know, and more scrappy. I yeah. remember because I, I I was very good at rugby as well in school, like very good. Um, so well, what I'm, position? At, what position at rugby? Because that is a it's 
Yeah, it's it's weird because for school I was a prop, but for yeah. my club I was a winger because I could sprint as well. <laughs> I, I was inside centre, which I think was about number thirteen or something. Yeah, so so yeah, I played two very very different positions, and it's really weird watching a game through the winger's perspective. Yes, I mean the thing that amazed me about any sport, especially field sports, is you can watch it on television, you can see tactics what they should be doing yeah but if you're actually playing the game oh yeah it's a big brawl big brawl you can't, you can't see anything can you mm. and how they can work out who's behind them where to kick the ball where to pass the ball to me is a total mystery yeah they're on the it's actually on the field to have awareness of what's going on around you yeah it's, it's crazy just trapped in that little bit of your own part of the game and you don't know what's going on on the rest of the field it's uh i've got a great admiration for Top class rugby players. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a it was a good hob hobby, you know, rugby. It, I just got too many head injuries from it. But also, you do bass guitar. Yeah. So how do you? One last question on rugby. Um, uh, you're obviously English. So you support the English rugby team, I would assume. Uh, well, when they play, yeah, I guess. Because I, I was born in Wales, and so I I support Wales or anyone who's playing against England, with a few minor exceptions. All oh, right. Probably South Africa um, and Australia. It's it's difficult, but I think um, I've seen England playing rugby. The thing which makes rugby different to other sports is if England play well and score a try. I applaud it because it, it's brilliant to see people playing well. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's it's where it distinguishes it. I think from other sports is where you can, you will actually applaud and appreciate good play. From whoever's played it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they call the referees sir, and do as they're told most of the time. I'm not so much of a fan of watching rugby right now because it's just become uh, a competition of who's the biggest and who can kick the furthest. It's it's sort of like kicking from one end of the field to another. I like it when there's actual tactical play, when it um, turns into like chess, you know, physical chess. You know, I like yeah. that, not um, just kicking well, and hoping. Uh, one of their strengths is. It generally is keeping the ball in hand and going through the phases mm. and that's one of the best rugby tactics you can watch yeah you kick it every now and again there's no point I think playing ping pong where you kick the ball back and forth that is mega boring and yeah yeah it is and that's that's it's it's that whole low risk potentially high chance of reward so they just go okay. for it anyway mm. back to bass guitar yeah how do you how did you find learning the bass guitar from scratch well, I can go back in the past. Um, when I was a young teenager, I did actually play in a fairly crap pop band. Oh, nice. <laughs> and we would we'll just say we were the forerunners of the punk era, because none of us could play particularly well. Yeah. Um, the band did go on and, and actually make some successes, and I played keyboards. I only mm. knew about half a dozen chords, because that era was very much dominated by sort of some chordy um, basses. Lines in them. Yeah. Um, I'd always fancy playing, learning to play the guitar. I learned piano as a child, so I at least knew how to read music, and that that is a slightly yeah, it's a great advantage. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went into semi-retirement about um, three years ago that I, I just set some things to do. These are things which take you out of your comfort zone to be challenged, and one of them was to learn to play the bass guitar. Hmm. 
Well, I took some advice from some musicians about what was the best one to buy, what was the best form of amplification. And so I went out and bought a, a Fender Jaguar bass, a uh, short scale, and uh, an Orange crush, crush 50 watt combination amp. And then a small amp as a backup for if I'm playing with someone at home. And, and set about learning. Um, I found a really good guitar tutor who's very patient, very skilled. He does actually teach guitar at primary school as well. So he's probably the right sort of person. To be yeah. Used. We started off just doing boring things like scales, uh, which are incredibly boring. So I, I did suggest him, isn't it about time that we just switched to trying to learn some actual pieces of music. Now he was right, he was saying all he was actually teaching me was muscle memory and minimising movement frets. You know, so you use all your fingers. Yeah. You don't bite yeah. one finger up and down, you use all your fingers. Yeah, you surprise, you're surprised how weak your pinky finger is, because I've, oh. I've done a little bit of guitar, uh, so you just do it and you think, ah, oh, I can't even get my hand up there, you know, it's like... And he makes me run up and down scales using the four fingers, you know, keeping your thumb to go, slide up and down the fret. But yeah. You can just forget to start anywhere and do one, two, three, four down, and then go one, two, three, four up, and, you know, and, and just, you just go up and down the frets. And that really does strengthen your fingers up. Yeah. The other thing which, upon his advice, was is don't have a bath, wash your hands or get them wet just for playing. Because it softens the skin and it can literally cut into your fingers. Mm. So they really need, not only do you need to strengthen all your fingers, you need to toughen them up so you've got your pads on them. Yeah. Because both guitar strings are, they're metal and quite solid. And yeah, they're, yeah, they're wires. They're Pretty wise, much, basically. yeah. So once we once he tortured me with that for a while, we moved on to some basic, simple sounds, and a lot of it is stuff from the seventies and eighties, up to the nineties, uh, Joy Division, um, those sort of thing. And what's a, a real thrill is when you're trying to learn to play something that you know how it should sound, that it does actually start to sound like it's it. satisfying, isn't it? Oh, it's so satisfying. Yeah. Was, of all the pieces I play best is a Black Sabbath number called Iron Man. Hmm. And it actually sounds like it. And yeah. once you start sounding like it, you can then start to embellish it. You can hammer down, you can start bending notes and add all the bits to it. Yeah, it's, I think as soon as you start like playing something that sounds like it should, you actually... Yeah. your your productivity when playing the guitar increases rapidly. It goes, it just goes oh, yeah. from zero to 100 so quickly. Yeah, and it's just amazing how you actually learn to play it. And that's probably mentally someone, it's mentally you saying, this actually works, I'm gonna try even harder now, or yeah, something like that. What, what we always start off with the session now, because now he brings his lead guitar or acoustic guitar, and so we play together. We always start off with 12 bar blues, where I just play it, go through it, or, you know, and he just adds some sort. He jams on top of it, mm. and, it and it almost sounds quite musical. Yeah, yeah and and it, and it is a, it's a real thrill once once because it's really funny the first time you try and play with. There's one thing just picking out a guitar and playing it, but then when you play with other people, you've actually got to play as one unit. Yeah, in sync. In sync, and the thing which surprised me most 
was I'd always assumed that the drummer was in charge and set the beat, the speed, etc. But it, it is actually the bass guitarist. Yeah, yeah. The bass guitarist set everything underneath and everyone else follows. That's because they hold the bass line, isn't it? So. Yeah, which is why they often say that the most miserable member of any band is the bass guitarist. Because they're the ones that have to be quite serious. Because since learning to play, then if you watch a band playing, I immediately focus on the bass guitarist. Look for the one who's got the guitar with only four keys up. It doesn't take long. Yeah. And uh, what you'll notice they all do, or virtually all of them, and watch and check this out, is they count the rhythm by walking back and forth. And it's generally four paces forward, four paces back. Yeah. But, and each pace is a bar, basically. Mm. And, that, and that's how they get the timing going, by walking back and forth. And you find virtually all bass guitarists do that. It is one, two, three, four, then back, one, two, three, four. They, they actually, they set their timing by walking, pacing back and forth. Yeah. And they generally look very serious. Mm. Now, yeah. one of my favorite bass guitarists is the guy who played uh, bass guitar for, you know, uh, The Police. You know what his name is? Slash? No, he's much older, but they started in the seventies. He's still about. Actually. No, Slash is the electric guitar guy, isn't he? Yeah, who's uh, the singer and the bass guitarist? I don't know. And he, he's a brilliant bass guitarist. He did things like Walking on the Moon and things like. That. Yeah. Um, and he plays the bass guitar all wrong. And he's one of these one of the best bass guitarists ever. I think of his name in a minute. Because he actually, instead of using his fingers. To, to, you know, to twang the notes, he uses his thumb. Yeah. And you're just taught not to do that. Yeah, so he's I got, think, it gives him an original flow then, right? It's an original flow and original sound. Yeah. Also, very lucky years ago, I went to see Jimi Hendrix live. That must have been something. It was something, but he does everything wrong as well, because you know he was left handed. Yeah. And so, what did he do with his guitar? He, he played it upside down, didn't he? Yeah, he played a right-handed guitar, but turned it upside down. Mm. Um, you know, what, a, what an amazing thing to do to, to achieve <coughs> a total, totally unique sound. But Hen yeah. Hendrix was a musical legend, though, so... He was. I, I was lucky in that era. I went to see Jimi Hendrix. I also saw Jim Morrison and the Doors. Yeah. And I felt real, felt really lucky to, or privileged to have been around in that era when, when they actually were performing. Yeah, that's that's a moment to remember. So, basically, this is just an introduction to you. We'll have you on again for another episode. Um, yeah, I know, I know. We're gonna go on to that. Then we're gonna talk about psychology. Um, we're gonna do a, a sort of a a rough explanation of psychology, uh, and then we'll go on uh, on a different episode to talk about other things in detail. Get questions in. Yeah, I mean, do you need to go on to movies and psychology now, or do you want to, like, curtail it? We've got, I think we've got quite a lot of time on it. Yeah, you know? uh, we can talk about the movies. That's cool. We'll do the movies. Yeah, we'll just do the movies. Right, the other thing I've really enjoyed in the last three years, and it's to do with getting out of your comfort zone, and initially my daughter thought I was mad. Here I am, a, a chartered psychologist, been lecturing in psychology for over 20 years, 200 publications plus, decided it's time to retire and then not only first of all do I start to learn bass guitar, I've also signed up an agency for acting in movies, mainly acting as what's called a character support artist, 
your background scene and doing all sorts of silly things. So what was the main thing that motivated you to do that? What, what did it, was there something that just clicked in your head that said, I'm going to do this now? No, because when I was a teenager, I initially wanted to do a degree in movie production or direction. Yeah, so you were just following... And I'd harboured that desire all those years. Yeah. And suddenly I was able to do it, because you have to be available short notice. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get a same-day warning. I get a phone call in the morning saying, can you get to London, be at so-and-so place, um, we're, we're shooting sort of thing. Mm. And, and the, the nice thing is, you never know what you're going to do. Because until you've signed what's called an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, they don't reveal to you what movie, what television series you work. Yeah. And then once you've signed it, um, they're, they're really saying that if you reveal any details about the production on social media, in magazines, or anywhere else, um, not only will you not get paid for the job, we'll probably prosecute you, and you never work in the industry again. Yeah, so you can't say any spoilers then. No, and I've worked for companies like Disney who are incredibly strict about that as well. Oh yeah, Disney are, they're, they're sort of that secretly underground lawyer type thing, you know, it's yeah. like anything, that they've, they've just got to keep their name up, you know. Yeah, and you have to declare all your social media contacts to them. Yeah. Um, they say for emergency, you can have your mobile phone on you, it must be switched off, and they stick security stickers over the camera lenses. You yeah. Can't take no recording on set. Then when you leave set, they check that they're still in place. Yeah. You know, um, which I, you know, I don't blame them because. Well, look know, at how much money goes into it, so they don't want it spoiled or. No, because when I was doing the uh, that Disney movie, I remember reading a, an article in a local newspaper where they said someone's filming at so and so location, but we can't find out what it is. Yeah. And I, I could I could have run and told them because I was in, I was doing it. Yeah. Just, just don't do that. Yeah. yeah. It generates some interest. But I can talk a little bit about my I think claim to fame, and that was again on a similar thing. Um, just being called up to go to the uh, the Harry Potter studios at Leavesden. Yeah. And I, and I did get a freebie look around it while I was there actually. Um, and once I'd signed the all the contract stuff, it was a case of. Um, wardrobe, uh, makeup, haircut, and a few screenshots just to confirm that you actually were going to play the bit of work. Yeah. And the director for that particular thing, uh, Chris McGarg or McGarity or something, uh, um, he employed what I thought was a very clever trick. That while we were doing all that, he brought some of the main stars around to chat to us. Mm. And one of them was Tom Cruise. And so it meant you'd already had your chat with Don Cruise. So when you got on set for real filming in central London, you're not starstruck. You know, you don't you don't want to, you know, chat to him and you just, just go on with the job. So does that mean you spoke to Tom Cruise then? I spoke to Tom Cruise um, before it, and he was chatty during the filming, actually. How did he, you find you know, him? I found he was very friendly and very professional and treated everyone who was on set, especially on the acting side, like fellow professionals. Yeah. You didn't know whether it was your first time you'd ever done a movie or whether you were a seasoned professional. He treated everyone with respect and accept and expected that same respect treated back to him. So what was, have you have you had many uh speaking roles? I've only had to date one speaking role in a in a short movie. Um, it's what you call a, a close directed speaking role. 
that's being produced for film festivals. Yeah. Because that's how the um, the directors get their big jobs. That's like a marketplace for upcoming directors, basically. And you did you did regular voice uh, or put on a no, voice? No, I, I did one scene for it, and, and it involved speaking up, and and it was and it was great fun. Because mm. it was very different to doing a big movie where you're part of the crowd. Like you think. This was yeah. close directed. It was sitting at a dinner table at a dinner party, and oh, I mean, right. at certain points you actually had the camera in your face. I can't tell you what it was, but I can tell you one funny story about it because um, it was filming one scene which will be about five or ten minutes in the movie. It was all day filming. We redid it 14 times until the director was happy mm. and got enough shots to cut them all in together and make one scene. It might only be five minutes when it comes out. Now, part of the scene involved actually physically eating a slice of pizza. Yeah. And so the, the director would say, cut, shout to the assistants, clear the table, bring on the new pizzas, and we film it again. I actually had to eat 14 slices of pizza. <laughs> now, the first cut of slices were really nice, but I did make the director laugh because we had a glass of the water. I just said it was a good job we weren't drinking gin and tonic or something with it because I'd be on the floor now if I mm -hmm. Yeah. But she thought it was hilarious, actually. But it, it was just great fun, actually. And we were members of a, a golf committee having some like lunch at the vicarage and chatting with the vicar and his wife about what was going on. Yeah. And it was great fun. And I, it felt like it was going to be a scene from a 1980s comedy series, really, is what it actually felt like. Mm. But again, it was that, exactly the same thing, is everyone treats everyone like you got those who are working on the cameras, light, the fun around, etc. And then you got the actors. And all the actors are treated like exactly the same level, all professionals. That's so good. Like stars yeah. in it, on, on set, you were all equal. Yeah. And Tom Cruise did make one lovely comment after all they filming with him. And he didn't have to do it. He grabbed the mic on the microphones and thanked everyone who had been involved, particularly the, the extras, etc. And said, some of you will be foreground, some of you will be background, some will never be seen. You'll just end up on the cutting floor when they edit the movie. But he said there was one important point. He said, I could not do that scene without you. Your role is to create the setting. Yeah. To allow the, the actors to work within. So you're almost like a bit of scenery, really. But without you, um, they couldn't do it. And so he just said, thank you very much for your professionalism and your patience in spending about eight hours filming a scene which I've seen since and is about 20 seconds of the movie. Yeah, well you, <clears throat> do you feel proud of yourself whenever you see yourself in a movie, does it? Yeah, one, the Disney film which I was in, I went to see it with my grandchildren and they got very excited about seeing a grand, grandpa on the big screen. Yeah. They couldn't believe it the first, first time I appeared on the screen. There's Grandpa. <laughs> it was it was actually uh, yeah quite a big um. Uh, anyway, let's move on to psychology a bit, and it's actually just a little bit about what we're going to talk about in the next session. Okay. Because psychology is uh, what I do enjoy most. Now there are two areas I particularly want to cover some bits on. One is the human brain, and it's about it's about myths and fallacies about what the average person thinks we know about the brain. We'll come to that. The other is an area of psychology I particularly love, which is counter 
intuitive psychology. That is, when you think about human behaviour, you base it, a lot of it on assumptions and rationality. Mm. Whereas actually what, what lies behind it is the absolute opposite. And there are so many examples where, I'll give you just one example. If I was to ask you, why do we sleep? What would your response be? Uh, to recharge our batteries. Yeah. But as research shows, um, and also it's an old wives' tale, why should you not eat a big meal just before you go to bed? Because your body shuts down. Yeah. So in other words, no energy is going to be produced or processed when you're asleep. Mm. So the reason why we sleep is not to re-energise the body or because you're tired. Yeah. Sleeping but actually a completely different purpose to that. So, have you heard of a dietary plan called intermittent fasting? Yeah, I, I know about dieting and, and various um, wide-called fads and pseudoscience, unfortunately. So, what do you, what do you think of in, intermittent fasting then? It's um, where you, you save all your calories and all your meals to the last part of the day. Um, there, there's some sort of sense in it. Um, it's actually quite a, a difficult one to answer. I can't remember that blood phrase. That's, that's, a, that's a good question, which means that you need time to think because you don't know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> top of your head. And we will refer back to that numerous times. <coughs> on that question, I think you should ask me next time. Hmm. Because what I need to explain is actually the eating behaviours, why we eat, and the evolution of eating. Well, I've, I've heard a few things, like, uh, and this is probably the main reason why I ask what's your breakfast when we start, because yeah. breakfast apparently is so important. If you have a high-fat breakfast, the chances of you having anxiety through the day decreases dramatically. Yes, um, and again, mention that that is a totally different topic area which is fairly new in research and that's the relationship between gut bacteria and brain processes yeah it's with particular interest in mental health mm. and one of the things they're, they're slowly working is changing the makeup of the bacteria in your stomach so it has an impact on mental health issues yeah and so you know it, it, you are right it's almost what you eat in the morning can determine how you think during the day. Which is crazy, uh, but it, I, I guess it makes sense. I mean, when looking at theories like that, I tried to look at what the cavemen would have done. So yeah, I guess a really successful caveman would, uh, a, a really successful caveman would be able to uh, have breakfast, right? And that would have rewarded him. Well, no, he wouldn't have needed breakfast. That's why um, if you're going to talk about the evolution of eating behaviour, it is incredibly complicated, mm. and it's nowhere near as straightforward as that. Actually, I think the interesting thing is certainly the relationship between your stomach and mental health. It, it is incredibly new, but what it's really sort of based on is your body has to produce the chemicals for your brain to work with. Yeah, and those chemicals are actually, you know, taken from the food you eat. That's the only way you can get them into your body. Yeah. So certain. Uh, patterns of bacteria are better at ex extracting the necessary minerals and chemicals. Yeah. So what you do is actually, it is to have the, the correct um, bacteria, strength of acid, etc. in your stomach 
mm. to, to actually extract the, the necessary um, nutrients out of what you eat. So it might not just be that you've eaten a fatty breakfast, etc. It is actually what your stomach is able to process. Um, and so, you know, everyone's stomach processes something different. Yeah. Find it's particularly like stuff from, say, clinical depression, have got a specific range of bacteria in their stomach which are different to, say, someone who doesn't. Yeah, that would be a good one to discuss in a future episode, if we go future into depth with that, yeah. Because it is very new research, it's in its infancy, mm. this relationship between the bacteria in the stomach and the way your brain works. But one, one thing I would like to speak about with you quickly is uh, yeah. psychopathology. Psychopathology, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's the old chestnut one. So um, what is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Yeah, what I want to ask you first is what does psychopathology actually mean? I don't know what it means. I know sort of what it's about. I don't know what it means, though. Yeah. It's really it's basically it's the nature and progression uh, of mental disorder. Mm. What, any mental disorder? or just any mental disorder, So it could count as schizophrenia? Or? Yeah, if you, were, if you were, say, studying a module on psychopathology, then you probably would do schizophrenia, uh, uh, um, depression, and maybe eating disorders. Mm. Um, so they all come under psychopathology. But your specific question was um, a psychopath and a sociopath. Yeah. Um, I mean, to start with, do you know what a psychopath is? What are the classic symptoms of psychopaths? So, I know both psychopaths and sociopaths share very similar traits. Um, they're both very... Well, psychopath is very manipulative. Yeah. Um, uh, they're sort of unlikely for you to know they're a psychopath until yeah, it gets sprung on you. Uh, to define a psychopath versus a sociopath, I... I, I always was under the assumption that um, psychopath is born and a sociopath is made. Right. I'll give you some sensible definitions on them. I start with um, the way uh, mental disorders or mental illness is classified is using the DSM-5 or the ICD-10, which seems to be the ICD-11. And without going too deep into them, they are lists of symptoms. If those symptoms co-occur, then a syndrome can be diagnosed, such as schizophrenia, etc. Now, under psychopathology in DSM-5, etc., they have got psychopaths. They yeah. do not distinguish between a psychopath and a sociopath, because actually the underlying symptoms are exactly the same. The, the main ones is a lack of empathy for victims and control, the slight difference between the two of them is that a psychopath is generally a very well respected person within the community, such yeah. as a doctor or a teacher or a priest. So someone with authority? Yeah, authority. And the classic example would be Jimmy Savile. Yeah. Who used his celebrity status and the high regard which was placed upon him for his work within children's charities and hospitals. Mm. Now underneath he was abusing children in hospitals because he was given the free range within them that wasn't supervised etc. Yeah. So the classic difference between a psychopath and a sociopath is a very simple one. When a psychopath is eventually caught 
it's generally a big surprise to everyone. They yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't expect him to be this bad. Exactly. Whereas uh, a sociopath <coughs> tends to be a bit of a loner, socially inept, and people are not surprised. So, do you know a, do you know a good example of a sociopath then? I was trying to think actually. I'd have to look it up. Um, it might be someone like Ted Bundy. If you know the character. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I know him. Because that would come under forensic psychology, as under an area of organised and disorder. So organised um, psychopaths, they they take things like forensic countermeasures. You know, they clean up, you know, blood and fingerprints, etc. I think I know a good example of a sociopath. Uh, Charles Charles Manson. Charles Manson. The guy yes. with the uh, swash sticker tattooed on his forehead. Yeah, because he was always he was always a bit weird. Hmm. Yeah. 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 He'd definitely be classed as a sociopath because they make no attempt to hide their crime. Yeah. They think it's normal. Yeah. So psychopaths and sociopaths are incredibly similar. It's just a psychopath you're generally surprised, and a sociopath you're not surprised because they were always a bit weird. So, in your lifetime, have you ever encountered a psychopath? And if so, oh, how did you deal with them? Well, that's an interesting... That is an interesting question. I know we've chatted a bit before. I don't think I even mentioned it. But, yeah, um, I've got to be very careful what I say. Um, I was working at one university, not, not one in my locality, a different one, and I had a, a late phone call on a Sunday night saying, if the press or media are getting... You are not say anything. Just refer them back to the establishment's media department. Mm. You are not allowed to say a word. Quite a surprise on a Sunday night. You've got absolutely no idea what's going on. I didn't get called either. Obviously. So obviously, turn up to work Monday eagerly to find out what what happens. And one of my colleagues been um, arrested for being a serial rapist. Wow. And I can't give you any more details about the case because it, it will identify him, etc. Um, but he's still in prison. He's got a lifetime sentence. Um, uh, um, borderline personality disorder, clinically insane, no treatment would help. Wow. Um, so I, did did you have daily encounters with this guy then? Well, yeah, I worked with him for years. How did you find him? Nice. Socialised with him. He was a perfectly nice, normal person. And you just didn't expect, so he's a, wow, that's crazy. So you just completely and, don't expect it. No, and the only good thing which came out of it, one was him obviously getting caught, well, secondly, he was a more senior lecturer than me, and his office was better than mine, and I got his office. <laughs> yeah. look on the bright side. Take out the positives. <laughs> just the one very brave girl to go to the police about. Yeah, you know, I think she was incredibly brave, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's. She, she means it happened to no one else. So where does bravery come from then? Um, where does bravery come from? That, that, again, that, that's a, a very big bit. Um, they do. There is a, a little branch. So it's um, psychology of heroism. Hmm. And that's where people do acts of bravery with no regard to their own life, and the person they're helping or saving is not a genetic relationship. And, you know, so it does. It does. You know, bring some big questions about human behaviour. Um, you know, because I think the, the one famous person who's written and researched a lot on psychology of tyranny and heroism. The sort of two ends of the spectrum. And there's a researcher called Zimbardo. He's very famous in in other areas. 
Is that the guy who wrote the Gulag Archipelago? It sounds like him, the sort of thing he would have written about. Yeah. It? Yeah, and he, he's ab- absolutely fascinating. Actually. Um, I forget his name, though. Philip Zimbardo. I've met him a couple of times. Oh, so no, I'm, okay, we're thinking of someone different then. Right, but it, it's very much connected with that, that sort of era. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I think we should bring this to a halt now. Okay. Um, it means that we've got lots of psychology topics we can talk about in the next session. Yes. When we do, yeah. When we do James interviews uh, an eminent psychologist who's a, a legend in his own breakfast time, mm. and we cover quite a diverse range of topics, which then includes things like intelligence. Does anything really exist? Um, the brain timeline. Um, and and just loads, loads of things actually like why do we sleep yeah um, it, there are just so many areas which could be discussed about or discussed over it's um you know i feel lucky to have um you know become a chartered psychologist studied it in very general terms being a wealth of knowledge and as a, i think a footnote to it is one of the great things about being educated and learning is you should never think you know it all because mm. there's something there's always something new to learn I mean you knowing I, things like this makes you a very fascinating character for sure yeah I want to give one postscript and you can ask other people who interview this and that is one book that you read when you were quite young that actually inspired you yeah but I can narrow it down to one very simple book it's by George Orwell it was a uh, there were two books, Down and Out in, London, in Paris and London, and then Road to William Pier. Mm. And it was about George Orwell's early life. And he makes one really critical statement in it, which that has stuck with me right through life and inspired me to go to university. It's a very simple line. It was, um, there's uh, nothing worse than being undereducated and being um, intelligent enough to realise it. Okay, and that was that. That was a nice George Orwell quote to finish on there. Um, I'd like to thank Andy Mack for coming on as my first guest of the Beginning by Thinking show. Hopefully we can have him back and hopefully we'll get all sorts of different guests on. Um, If there are any questions for Andy Mack, uh, the eminent psychologist with the uh, legendary breakfast, um, DM me on Instagram at beginningbythinking. I hope you all have a great day, great evening, great morning. Uh, Goodbye, guys.